Section 1 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 20. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 20, edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 1. The Little Visitor, by Elizabeth Oakes Smith. Ten to one, the home baby is the prettier of the two, although its face is half hid. I am sure it must be prettier than the little visitor, with her broad staring eyes and prodigious forehead. That forehead, well, that is the way heads are becoming in our country. The women all write, learn their allergies, discuss politics, and talk of the march of the mind. And then the men make speeches, get earnest every three weeks over some petty election, and furious every four years about the presidential. The result will be that heads will become foreheads. There will be no space for the affections. People will think, think, and after a while go mad over some absurdity or other. You see, this is Emma Carey's first hopeful. People never send the second or third round to visit the neighbors. And as for any above those numbers, being named as a little visitor, it would be the height of the ridiculous. Mary Manton, the pretty Mrs. Manton, with pouting lips and a proud, pettish air, alas for alliteration, is looking half jealous at the notice little Anna attracts, though in her soul she knows her child is twice as handsome. What mother doesn't? I wish there were something about the little visitor suggestive of something besides well-to-do-itiveness, but there isn't. She evidently sucks her thumb in genial content. Her lymphatic plumpness gives no presentiment of impending evil. No coming events cast their shadows before. She anticipates womanhood by the tenacious quest of the rattle, the coquettish raising of the shapeless hand, and the already effective eyes. A loss for Harry Manton. He begins to be victimized even now. We wish there was something less benign in the aspects of things about the little visitor, and then a story might be written such as would be read. But it is otherwise, all as genial as it should be, about the innocent and the beautiful. Happiness is diffused like the sunshine everywhere. It is the abiding rule, and we notice only the exceptions. Indeed, so universal is the law that people affect the thing even when it does not exist, as though there was something questionable in grief. In this way, Novels and romances are in good repute with the inexperienced and the happy, for they deal in the deeper emotions of the human heart, the feelings that are not of everyday recurrence and call forth the luxury of tears. Few sorrows hath she of her own, my hope, my joy, my Genevieve, and best she loves me when I sing the songs that make her grieve. Ay, and she does so because she hath had few sorrows of her own, to those who in the agony of suffering have known the dearth of tears, so that they have exclaimed, Oh, that mine head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, a tale of distress is appalling. Even the sad one that beguileth the unconscious tears put aside, as awakening memories that were better buried in oblivion. Such dread to have their sensibilities awakened. The reel of life has made too many appeals, and when fiction donneth her iris robe, relieved by the thick cloud that giveth it form, they shrink from her as from a swindler of the heart, 
a trifler with the sacredness of human emotions, a voluptuary that for the gratification of a pampered fancy extorts the soul's tribute. The little visitor is too happy for romance. Fat people never suggest it. They are the matter of fact of life, the everyday bread and butter, very good, indeed, very necessary. But then the soul sometimes asketh, like Oliver Twist, for more. What can be said of the little visitor? All animals have the power to make themselves understood to one another. The two babies have established an intelligence at once. It is curious to watch their mute, yet beautiful sympathy. Do they recognize their pre-existence? Do they recall an earlier and blissful state when life was repose and flowers and sunshine? A long breathing of undefined pleasure, expressionless, unvarying, folding the being to a downy consciousness that is, and yet is not, a dreamy waking, a slumbering hopefulness, a rare-tinged cloudiness where thought is the germ, minute and indistinguishable, in the enfolding carola of being? Surely the children have a sweet recollection of such state, and their glances are those of pleasant reminiscence and mutual delight at meeting in a new country, as yet to them full of enjoyment and wonder. The inferior animals have a recognition of babyhood, as something nearer to their own intelligence than the adult, hence their watchfulness over it, and their caresses expressive of mere sympathy and less reverence. I remember a pretty anecdote of a cat, which really seemed to think that a baby might have a fancy for a mouse. She had lived longer than most of her species, and was remarkable for her matronly and skillful discipline. She was remarkable, too, for her attachment to her young responsibilities, restricting them to their rightful department, as if she had learned the peril of permitting them to stray beyond. She had one kitten, the last of the family, a sort of Benjamin in feline life and affection. She suffered incessant anxiety on its account, confined herself to its basket, caressed it, played with it, and then when the playful creature slept with exhaustion, Puss took her accustomed position upon the window sill, folded her paws beneath her dainty chest, and luxuriated in the sunshine. The least sound from Kitty drew her with a quick cry from her place, and all her solicitude was renewed. At length, when Puss found it necessary to renew her mousing expeditions to the larder, Benjamina became the gift of a curly-pated little gypsy in the neighborhood. Puss returned and grew half frantic at her bereavement. With a mouse yet struggling with life in her mouth, she went from room to room in her search. Where a door impeded her, she would put the mouse under her paw, making piteous cries till it was opened. She would then inspect every corner of the apartment, holding the mouse in her mouth. She would leap upon tables, bookcases, and turn aside curtains till convinced it was all in vain. In this way, the whole house was examined, and she returned slowly to the nursery. Here, a child just beginning to sit erect was beating his rattle upon the floor. Puss looked on for a while. There must have been the strugglings of thought in its poor cranium, thought growing out of its outraged maternity. She crushed the mouse she held in her mouth, and then softly approaching the child, laid it upon its lap. Of course, the baby took it up to convey it where everything goes at that age of being, and Pussy laid her head down and purred in content. End of section one.